0: This week on WealthTrack, are we in the midst of a rare Super Bowl market? Stay tuned for our exclusive annual outlook with Wall Street's long-reigning number one economist, Ed Hyman, joined by leading global value manager, Matthew McLennan. Next on Consuelo Mack, WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going.
1: Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation.
0: Hello and welcome to our annual Economic and Market Outlook edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. It's been a longstanding tradition and privilege of ours to have Wall Street's longtime number one economist, Ed Hyman, join us exclusively to share his views on the economy and markets. This week, our focus is the U.S. Next week, we will look beyond our borders to the world at large. Hyman is founder, chairman, and head of economic research at Evercore ISI, a top-ranked macro and investment research firm. He has been voted the number one economist on Wall Street by Institutional Investors Survey of Professional Investors for an incredible 37 years. His comprehensive but succinct and easily digestible daily macro research reports are considered must-reads by professional investors. We always ask a leading portfolio manager to join Hyman, and for the second year in a row, we are delighted to have First Eagle Investment Management's Matthew McLennan with us. McLennan heads up the firm's global value team— Overseeing $111 billion in assets, he is portfolio manager on several funds, including the firm's flagship asset allocation fund, First Eagle Global Fund, which has delivered strong risk-adjusted returns over many years under McLennan's decade of leadership and before that under legendary value investor Jean-Marie Eveillard. To understand where we are going, it helps to understand where we have been. A central thesis of Hyman's is that the stock market drives economic activity. Since 1968, that's a 50-year stretch, the S&P 500 has increased 20% or more only 12 times. Last year, it came within a hair of doing so, with its 19.4% gain. In 10 of those 12 times, the economy was strong the following year. Taking out the effects of inflation, real GDP increased 2.7% or more. So 83% of the time, economic activity was robust. The average for the 12 years after market advances of 20% or more was 3.4% real GDP growth. The S&P 500 last year had another distinction. According to Hyman's team, it had a perfect year. 2017 was the first year ever that the S&P posted positive total returns, that's including dividends, every month. The previous closest perfect year was 1995, which had only one down month. The market that year was up 34 percent. The following year, it gained 23 percent with dividends included. And real GDP was a gangbuster 4.5 percent. Well, why does stock market performance seem to be so important to economic activity? What's the connection? That's where we began our discussion.
2: There are three things mainly. One- is a confidence factor, even if people don't own equities. Another is a wealth factor for people that do own equities and confidence. And then a third is that the things that make equities go up, like monetary policy, uh, will tend to persist you know, for a while until they, they change, and then it stops working. Uh, but those are the three drivers.
0: And w- one piece of research that, that you've done that I cited in my introduction to you is, is the fact that I think more than 80% of the time, if the S&P 500, for instance, rises 20% or more, that the following year GDP growth is pretty strong.
2: Right. So that's, I think, just serendipity, but it reflects mainly that third part, that the conditions that make the market go up tend to persist into the next year, uh, and then that makes the economy better in the next year. So
0: let's talk about next year is this year. (laughs) What do you think is going to happen with the economy this year?
2: So I have a little different view this year. Uh, I've been for a while on the slow and steady. We've had 2% growth for almost a decade, and I got used to it and uh, stuck with it. Uh, But it looks as though the world economy has picked up, and now it's accelerating in the US, I think, uh, and in Europe, uh, and in Japan. So you have a synchronized global growth that's accelerating. And I'll, I'll let you know in a few months whether right. this is a, is a good idea or not. Uh, but at the moment, uh, many things I look at uh, show the economy accelerating. Uh, most recently, we survey companies all the, every week, about 200 companies. And uh, those surveys in the past few weeks have picked up quite a bit, uh, particularly with holiday sales, of being strong uh, right. in December. So a
0: pickup in economic growth means, if if we've been kind oh. of averaging 2%, what are we talking about? Uh, well,
2: so I'm, I'm on the edge of my chair. Uh, so we had 3% growth in the second quarter of last year, 3% in the third quarter. And just uh, two hours ago, uh, the Atlanta Fed raised their fourth quarter GDP estimate to 3.2. And for a variety of reasons, like the stock market leading, uh, I think that first quarter GDP of this year uh, will be will have a three handle on it. So you'll have four threes. Uh, and the consensus for growth this year is about two and a half.
0: Wow. So,
2: so there, you know, people could be
0: underestimated.
2: Well, we'll see. But right. the, the people could wake up and say, wow, maybe I should think about a three. Uh, and you have the tax cuts coming and the dollars down. There are you know, a number of things that could Uh, keep it going. And there are a lot of things that could push it back down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Matt, number one, from an investment point of view and a value investor that you are, what difference does this make in how you view valuations in the U.S.?
1: So as an investor... um, and particularly the form of investing that we undertake at First Eagle, which is very long-term investing, uh, what really weighs on us is, is less the near-term trajectory of the economy, uh, but the long-term valuation uh, environment that we're investing within. And the challenge with an environment like this is that um, as sentiment has improved, and you know, we've seen consumer expectation, confidence expectations improve dramatically relative to the last decade, You know, we've seen um, business confidence, as Ed referenced, uh, at, at high levels. As all of those things have improved, uh, credit spreads have tightened, uh, at risk perception has gone down, and, and equity valuations have gone up, which means that the outlook for us as long-term investors is actually more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to find good businesses at good prices uh, in this kind of uh, economic environment. And I think the other thing that's, that's challenging to think about when you take a 5- to 10-year perspective, which is sort of our investment horizon, uh, is that um, one has to reflect on the extent to which uh, the stimulative policy that we've seen has pulled growth forward to a certain extent. Right. Um, you know, We've seen savings rates uh, in the U.S. come down from 6% to under 3% in the last couple of years. Uh, yet, if we're in a low expected return environment for the long term, low yield curve, low credit spreads... Uh, high equity multiples, then at some point people need to save more uh, to meet their long term objectives and you know that 's a, a paradoxical situation and, and could be a headwind to long term growth in the future and secondly, um, the tax cuts, which are stimulative in the short term, the CBOs come out and they 're now projecting five percent deficits uh, out a few years and you know at some point uh, there 's going to be a need for fiscal consolidation uh, in the united states it 's unusual to have Fiscal stimulus at the peak of the cycle. Usually we see this at the trough of the cycle. And so the final thing I'll mention is that, you know, and and psychologists often refer to this, is that happiness is reality relative to expectations. Mm -hmm. And what matters from an investing standpoint is the extent to which um, reality lives up to expectations. And we saw uh, Ed reference the fact that the U.S. dollar actually weakened 10% over the last year. Most people were expecting the U.S. dollar to go up because the Fed was raising interest rates. The problem was that the Fed didn't raise interest rates sufficiently relative to expectations to take the dollar up. And so the dollar went down. Um, yes, the economy is growing today. Uh, earnings are growing at a rapid clip. Um, but will it be enough? Uh, only time will tell.
0: And you alluded to risks as well. That when you said, you know, Matt, we'll, we'll see what happens. So what, what are the risks that you see uh, in the economy?
2: The, uh, it seems to me as though things are pretty... Uh, certain right now. Certain? Certain. We know what the risks are. We know what the positives are. So the risk, I find, almost always, is the valuation, what Matt started out with. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a monster. Mm-hmm. The second- I mean,
0: PEs are really high. It's just that all asset classes have been lifted. Every and price is high. Everything is high.
2: I know you were going to buy that Da Vinci painting and-
0: Right, exactly. I out. just got young. <laughs>
2: But, uh, you know, bond prices are high. uh, And second, the Fed's tightening. And not just tightening. This is an unprecedented maneuver to shrink its balance sheet. At the same time, PEs are high. And then you have whatever you would put under geopolitical risk, Mm -hmm. which you don't have to even describe it. I mean, whether you start in Washington, D.C. or in Asia or in the Middle East. Uh, So that's enough to keep us pretty sober. But those are the risk uh, in the main three. So my, my job uh, and what I do is to be a coach to Matt. And he has his plan. Right. <laughs> and he looks to me for a certain perspective, uh, which is not a five or 10 year view. It's just what, what's going to happen in the next you know, six months or a year. Mm-hmm. And then you have to balance that uh, versus really the valuation uh, problem that's out there. Which is is scary, right? You know, why would why would you want to buy the S and P at almost three thousand?
1: You know, it's it's a challenge, and, and and I would just add, you know, debt is a problem overall. You know, if we look at the total Consumer stock of debt, debt. Household, household debt, debt. corporate. Right. And sovereign debt relative to GDP is actually higher than it was in 2007. In the US, which is in really the US, before
0: the financial crisis. And right? around
1: the world. Which right. I'm, totally, I'm totally with him and on that. And that's a headwind to future monetary growth. And in fact, if we look at money supply growth in the US, um, it's at a five-year plus low, probably a seven-year low for um, uh, growth in M2. You know, China's at a uh, two-decade low in, uh, in terms of its money supply growth. And so uh, As unemployment rates get low around the world, it's not just the US, but it's elsewhere around the world, financial conditions are tightening. uh, And um, that presents a more challenging environment uh, for uh, risk assets at some point.
0: And yet there's another phenomenon that could be at play here. And that is research that Ed's done on what you call super bull markets. And in modern times, there have been three from 1925 to 1929, in Japan from 85 to 89, and in the U.S. from 95 to 1999, where equity surged roughly threefold in the last five years of a Super Bowl market. I mean, could could we be in the, a Super Bowl market? And if so, so this, what phase are we in?
2: So either we're at the end or there's some real blow-off. Right. And uh, so this... Uh, at this point, there's only one, there are only two possibilities. This is it the end, for the reasons you're outlining, or the beginning of the end, or there's some melt-up? And so you say, well, what, have, what do melt-ups look like? Right. Uh, and the, the characteristic of melt-ups is that you have solid growth with very little inflation. And to, I just found this out, but in the, in the roaring 20s, growth was about 4% in the late 20s, and inflation was zero.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: And then in the Japan bubble, uh, in the 80s going into 1990, uh, growth was five and inflation was one. So there's something that drives financial markets crazy if you have good growth mm-hmm. without inflation. Now, all three of those, I covered three, all mm-hmm. three of those Super Bowl markets, as you point out, in the last five years, they tripled. Well, that would be inconvenient. Uh, a triple from here. Uh, and all three died the same way. They were shot by the Fed.
0: How do you deal with the possibility that we could be in a Super Bowl market? And, and in fact, that if corporate earnings are, get stronger, if the economy gets stronger, then maybe higher valuations are justified?
1: The future is uncertain. Yes. And um, that's one thing we know for sure. And uh, in, in that regard, you have to sort of step back from uh, the short-term uh, noise of sentiment and shifts in sentiment, which really drive multiples in the short-term, and think about what the long-term fundamentals are. We know that the economy is like a tree. It has tree, it has, uh, tree rings. You know, each year, the earnings power of the stock market is growing 4 or 5% a year. But multiples uh, for those earnings uh, ebb and flow with confidence. As a long-term investor, uh, the last thing you really wish for is a melt-up mm-hmm. in markets, because it shrinks the opportunity set of investments that have a margin of safety. And, you know, I think the first rule of investing should always be not to lose money. And so uh, if we're starting from a point of valuation that's already elevated relative to history, you pick your valuation metric, but um, I think it's unquestionable that valuations are high uh, relative to history today. Mm -hmm. Um, To have a melt up on top of current valuation uh, levels will only produce problems uh, in the medium term. I think investing done well is an environment uh, where uh, you you see a plenitude of opportunities to commit capital at reasonable returns. Uh, I think if markets melt up, what you have to do as a long-term investor is be patient and wait. Uh, and, and you know you've seen our cash levels start to drift up a little bit in right. our portfolios.
0: So uh, it's in, for instance, in the global portfolio, your cash level is up to it's around
1: twenty percent uh, in the portfolios at this point.
0: And you've got about eight percent in gold. A little more
1: than that, uh, if you add gold bullion and gold miners, it's oh, right. a low double-digit percentage of the portfolio. So we have about a third of the portfolio on what I'd refer to as ballast uh, at this right. point in time. And
0: out of equities. And, uh, and and
1: that's not a market timing call per se, but mm-hmm. it's a reflection of the fact that as stock prices have gone up. Uh, we've been selling some investments that have exceeded our sense of intrinsic value and no longer have a margin of safety. And it's been more difficult to redeploy that capital into new opportunities. Uh, the cash has a, you know, a low return right now. It's less than 2%, as you, you said. But it has the option value of being deployed in a more risk-averse state of the world. Implied volatility today is below 10%. Multiples are high. And so um, markets are priced for a very good economic reality. It could get better. Um, But over time, we would expect, uh, given the geopolitical uh, uncertainties that we see out there in the world, given the um, imbalances in in global balance sheets uh, that that we see out there, and just given the ebb and flow of confidence in economies and the fact that we're at a high level of confidence, at some point in the indeterminate future over the next few years, we'll see better buying opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're able to patiently wait for those opportunities in this kind of environment.
0: So the vast majority of our audience are Americans. The vast majority have the, have the majority of their investments in the States. Your view of the, the U.S. opportunities in the U.S. market?
1: So if we look at the US, um, it's actually not that different from what we see elsewhere around the world. Oh, it isn't? If you look Uh top down, it looks like European and Japanese markets are cheaper on certain valuation metrics. But a lot of that cheapness is concentrated in the banking sector. um, And and those are not necessarily securities that we're that attracted to, uh, by and large. And so if we look at similar quality businesses... Uh, the U.S. is priced fairly comparably with the rest of the world. And in fact, you know, you, you, know, you look at specific securities, Hermes is more expensive than Tiffany's. Um, SAP is more expensive than Oracle. Mm. And, you know, I could go down the list and identify good quality businesses overseas aren't necessarily cheaper than they are in the United States. So if you look at our portfolios overall, uh, we have about an equal measure of U.S. and international stocks.
0: So, Ed, I'm I'm listening to the the figures and the research that you've done. I'm looking at that, and it paints a pretty positive picture for the U.S., and yet I'm hearing you kind of psychologically saying that it's kind of scary.
2: Scary is a little bit strong.
0: All right. How Uh, do you reconcile?
2: So you have uh, the excellent points that Matt makes. The one that resonates most with me is the valuation on one side and the debt levels on the other, which is a troubling. But the on the U.S. economy, as we've talked about in the mm-hmm. past, when I travel around the U.S. economy, so many places look great.
0: And they still do, right? I all I mean, those they, cities that are all moving are still booming. Denver or, right. or Atlanta. Austin. It, I,
2: Austin. It looks I remember like you it.
0: said Buffalo last year. Yeah. <laughs> I st-
2: I'm sticking by it, too. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh, there was an article today on Bloomberg about how Las Vegas is booming. Uh, but uh, when I travel around, what I see is genuine prosperity. Right. You know, where people are you know, buying houses and low-income people are getting jobs. Uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. But uh, – to move it to a slightly different focus, uh, I'm, I'm with Matt that I've, I've given up on forecasting. Mm-hmm. I just try and see as far as I can, like if you're driving a car with in the dark with headlights. Right. But I can't see beyond the headlights. But it looks like in the headlights, earnings are going to go up. And as long as earnings are going to go up uh, and monetary policy is not too tight, then I'm going to keep driving, uh, I'll hope I don't run over a cliff, <laughs> but, uh, that's, but the earnings picture uh, is something you can focus on, and as, as Matt pointed out, it, it looks really good mm-hmm. at the
1: moment. I, I, I would just add, though, that from an investment standpoint, the best investment opportunities occur at the worst of times, not at the best of times. Right. And-, and That's when you see an abundance of good businesses available at more than reasonable prices. And so it's somewhat counterintuitive, but good economic news isn't always the friend of the long-term investor, Mm -hmm. particularly when you're well into the cycle. Unemployment's already gone from 10% to 4%. Whether it bottoms at 3.9% or 3%, we won't know. Um, The yield curve is already pretty flat. So, the bond market's sort of saying we're closer to the end of the cycle, although, um, you know, if you look at cycles historically, it's uh, often gotten negative at different Mm -hmm. points. But the simple point I'm trying to get across is that um, best opportunities occur uh, in the worst of environments. And so sometimes you have to lean into the wind uh, as an investor, especially if your time horizon is five to 10 years. Um, sort of seeing beyond where the headlights will go to use uh, ed 's analogy it 's recognizing if you can 't see beyond that horizon that you you have to stick to moving money out of cash into businesses one at a time when you have the right prices right and and those environments tend to be a little bit messier um, the other thing i 'd mention and and you know ed's brought up the geopolitical uh, backdrop in the world um, and even domestically is that when things get better, we tend to see more geopolitical surprises, not less. You know, when, when things are really bad, uh, people are hunkering down. They're focused on uh, just getting by. But when things get better, you know, Trump was elected well into an economic recovery. Uh, Brexit happened well into an economic recovery. The Catalonian referendum happened, you know, well into a recovery in Spain. Um, you know, when things get better, that's often the time where people start to Uh, think about their higher-order political needs. Mm -hmm. And so um, I wouldn't discount the possibility that we see unexpected geopolitical developments uh, in the next 12 to 24 months.
0: All right. One investment for a long-term, diversified portfolio, again, for a U.S.-focused wealth track, what would it be, Ed Hyman?
2: Well, in in terms of of, uh, the space in our shop that we like the best, it's the financial space. Because I'm pretty sure that the economy is getting stronger, or is st- solid. Yes. The global economy, the same thing. And in the same way that you talk about debt levels, mm-hmm. it seems to me as though inflation at some point will pick up. And interest rates are still remarkably low. Mm-hmm. And uh, Banks? So th- they're banks. financials. So banks. Banks. And so we like banks. All
0: right. Matt, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Just give me one idea.
1: Well, I would just say uh, I'd go back to uh, the the notion of defensive real assets, Uh, whether it's gold uh, or whether it's some of the other examples I gave you. I think that um, if you're already exposed uh, to this uh, updrift that we've been speaking about today, uh, just like a gardener will plant... Uh, in different stages of the year. Uh, now's maybe a little bit of a time to start to harvest uh, in portfolios. And that's not a market timing call, but it's just a recognition of the fact that um, prices are attractive for sellers right now uh, and less attractive for buyers. And and so owning something that hasn't been in favor uh, is probably a good place to start.
0: Great. We'll end it there for this week. And next week, we're going to talk about the global economy and more focused on the international. So Ed Hyman, thank you so much. And Matt McLennan, thank you. you, And we'll see you next week. Thank you. At the close of every Wealth Truck, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is take some money off the US stock market table. No matter how upbeat things look in the US, and as we just heard from Ed Hyman, they are pretty positive, we are far along in the economic and market cycle. The US economy was the first to recover from the financial crisis, as was the stock market. And there are plenty of late cycle signs flashing, including high price earnings multiples and Fed tightening. Trimming some profits won't hurt and might help cushion the correction when it comes. Next week, in part two of our exclusive outlook with Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan, we'll turn our attention overseas to the prospects and opportunities internationally. In the meantime, please go to our website's extra feature to hear what Ed Hyman is reading and recommending. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. We look forward to helping you make the year ahead a profitable and a productive one.